Church family, I invite you to open up in God's word to Genesis chapter 30. Genesis chapter 30. In verse 25 through chapter 31, verse 55 is our text for today. The title of our message is God's faithfulness through hardship. God's faithfulness through hardship. This is one of the longer passages that we have um, to study at, all at one time in the book of Genesis. Um, it's really just telling one, one story, and um, even though it covers many years. Um, but let's enjoy God's word as we read. You follow along. This is the word of God. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home, home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for, you know, the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I found favor in your sight, I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs. That is the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred, when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the stripe and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there, so the feebler would be Laban's, and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers, to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I'll see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not prevent, per, permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that made it with the flock were striped, spotted and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, 
And I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you, anoint, you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired and patted a ram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me? And did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and in the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. Laban fell all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you. For the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods and you have found, uh, of, what have you have found of all your household goods? See, set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether it was stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you've changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac cannot bend on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. 
Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine, but what can I do this day? For these my daughters are for their children whom they have borne. Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took stones, set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones, and they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see, this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me, this heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do me harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judged between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Life seems often to be one trial after another. Would you agree with me? Sometimes it seems that way, doesn't it? Sometimes it doesn't just seem that way. Sometimes it really is one trial after another. Have you ever have you ever used uh, analogies to describe that feeling? Maybe the analogy of, of drowning. You know, sometimes we say something like this. I can't seem to catch my breath or maybe I'm just trying to keep my head above water. Or sometimes we go the opposite instead of water. It's fire. Say something like, it's just out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? Out of the frying pan and into the fire. We use these different analogies to describe this feeling and really this reality of facing one trial after another. Life is full of trials. That's what we're trying to communicate. Friends, life on this earth is hard. We know that from experience. We also know that from God's word. God's word confronts us with the reality that the life we live is a life that will be, it is, full of many and various trials. But God's word, thankfully, doesn't just tell us that life is going to be hard and then just kind of leave us to fend for ourselves. God's word also prepares us for those seasons of hardship. God reveals to us how we are to face the trials of life one way by revealing to us what he is doing, where he is at and what he's up to through the trials of life. In our passage today, we get to look into a season of hardship in the life of one of God's chosen people. This isn't a man who God hates. This is a man who God loves. And yet he still finds himself both being loved by God, being God's chosen servant, and at the same time walking through seasons of hardship. And what we learn as we look at Jacob is this. Church, through seasons of hardship, God faithfully sustains his people. Through seasons of hardship, God faithfully sustains his people. We're on our journey through the book of Genesis, and at at this point in the story, we're learning from the life of Jacob. Remember, God has made salvation promises. He said those promises are coming through the line of Abraham. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, so he's going to be the one that carries on the family blessing and these promises of salvation to all the nations of the earth. Now, in chapter 28, remember, Jacob left his home in the land of promise for two reasons, to escape his brother's wrath because 
His brother wanted to kill him and to find a wife from among his people. That's why Jacob has left his home that he's now trying to get back to. Just to think about what we've already seen in Jacob's life in his sojourn in Paddan Aram. Remember, Jacob finds his family, falls in love, works seven years for his uncle Laban, and in order to marry Laban's daughter Rachel, gets tricked by Laban into marrying Laban's daughter Leah, then marries Rachel a week later, then has to work seven more years to pay for Rachel. And during that second seven years, the sisters live as bitter rivals trying to outdo one another and having children and vying for the attention of their husband. Now, that's just enough to one, make your head spin and, and then to say, oh, that's hardships enough right there. I mean, couldn't have been, can't add any more hardships to that. Certainly he wouldn't have survived. But friends, that's not, that's the hardships we've already looked at. That's not even the hardships that we learn about in the passage that we just read. God's word describes in fairly great detail this season of sojourning in the life of Jacob. And what stands out as we walk through um, these years of Jacob's life, what stands out is God's faithfulness through it all. God's faithfulness through it all. Chapter 29, verse 1 through 30, we learn that through moments of discipline, God faithfully preserves his people. In chapter 29, verse 31, uh, through chapter 30, verse 24, we learn that uh, through, through scenes of brokenness, God faithfully builds his people. And now in our passage today, we learn that through, uh, through seasons of hardship, God faithfully sustains his people. This theme of faithfulness we see all throughout these really difficult years in Jacob's life. This passage today that we have just read covers a span of six years. There's a lot of information and conversation recorded for us. And obviously we can't just go through and look at every word and every, everything that everyone in this passage says and does. Um, but, but it all boils down to this. Jacob's uh, life in Laban's household was really, really hard. But God sustains him through it all. Through all the hardship, God never ever left Jacob. Jacob made it through and was blessed in the process by the God who continually remained with him. It was God's presence that allowed Jacob to carry on and make it through. I want to share with you some truths we learned in this passage that we want to apply to our lives, but I want to do that in the in kind of the last half of our time uh, today. I, I want us to take the first few minutes and really walk back through the passage and just look and observe. That's a lot that we just read. It's a lot going on there just to get this story in our minds. Uh, one of the things that um, even some of you have said to me, and I know it's true for me, um, as we've been walking through Genesis is, I've read this before, but I've never noticed that. Or I've read this before, but I've never noticed that. And so one of the, one of the important things we do when we study God's Word is just see what's there. Because... It's easy for us to miss things. So let's just kind of walk back through and do some observation. You follow along um, as we walk back through, and then we'll do some interpretation and application, some takeaways from this passage. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, is born. He's completed all the years that he told Laban that he would work. It's time for him to go home. He's ready to get out of Laban's house. He's ready to go back home. But Laban doesn't want him to leave. Why is that? Well, remember what we said about Laban. Laban likes to, he likes his money and he likes his stuff. And as long as Jacob has been with him, man, he, he has just, he's been reaping the benefit of God's hand upon Jacob. Jacob is a hard worker and God's been blessing Jacob. And Laban has been the beneficiary of really God's promise. Do you remember the one of one part of the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verse three? He said that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. 
We know ultimately that's pointing to Jesus who came to rescue people from every nation, language, and tribe. But, but we get a foretaste of that here because Jacob living in another land actually is the cause, really God's the cause, but he's the cause because of God's promise of blessing coming to the household of the people of Laban. So God's blessing is hitting another land just like God said it would do. I've come, I'm making you a blessing to the nations. And Laban, he's not so much concerned about, wow, God is good. He's looking around going, man, I love having Jacob working here because my flocks are doing well. I'm increasing in wealth. My, my retirement account is just going through the roof, right? Um, it, it, he, he, is, he is excited that Jacob is there because he loves money and he loves his stuff. And so when Jacob says, I'm ready to go, he says, I don't think so. He wants him to stay. He wants him to stay. Now, Jacob first says, no, not going to do that. But then he changes his mind. He says, okay, I'll make a deal with you. Remember, Laban's a guy who loves a good deal. Um, And so he says, I'll make a deal with you. Jacob says, I'll just go through your flock and I'll take all the spotted and black sheep and goats. Those were the ones that weren't really wanted. They're also the rarer. Okay. And so um, Laban says, sure. Now, why does Laban agree to that? Is he just being really generous? No. He says, well, one, that's not going to be much of my flock. And two, I'm not going to give them to Jacob anyways. Because before he goes and gets them, I'm going to take them all. And I'm going to put three days journey between me and him. So Jacob says, sure, you can have the spotted and black sheep. And then before Jacob can go and get them, Laban steals them all. This is the kind of man. I mean, we've seen this out of Laban from day one as we've looked at this man and his interactions with Jacob. And so verses 35 through 36, he basically steals from Jacob. Think about hardship. But Jacob decides to stick around and try to breed some speckled and spotted sheep. Now, this is where the passage gets kind of interesting, right? Jacob uses a superstitious breeding technique, okay? Remember last week we talked about the superstition of the mandrakes being a fertility fruit? Well, here's another superstition of the day. The superstition was if you take some branches that are dark, some some branches, you rip off some of the bark and exposes the white wood, you put the, the then what looks like kind of spotted and striped branches in front of the flocks while they mate, if they're looking at stripes... While they mate, they'll produce striped offspring. That was the that was the thought. That was a superstition. Now I don't know what would happen if they happened to be looking at the sky and it was blue, or looking at a purple flower while they were mating. But anyways, that was the superstition of the day. If, if what they looked at, that was going to end up being what they produced. Jacob did this, and guess what happened? All the all the little baby goats and sheep were speckled and spotted or black. They were the ones that Laban had said Jacob could have. And then Jacob practiced selective breeding, and so that only the strongest made it together in front of the sticks, with the result that the strongest of the flock ended up being speckled and black. Uh, the end of chapter 30 tells us the result. So the feebler would be Laban's, and the strongest, uh, or the stronger Jacob's, thus the man, talking about Jacob, increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. And just as, I mean, I love the irony here, because... Laban says, sure, you can have the spotted and black sheep. Then he goes and steals them all. Then, all of a sudden, all of Jacob's flocks are producing spotted uh, and black sheep. But, ja- but Laban had put three days' journey in between them. And, I mean, we're talking three days and you're walking. And so you don't just go back and forth, okay? You go and you stay with your flock. So now, because Laban put three days' journey between him and Jacob, Laban can't see that all of Jacob's flocks are now producing uh, spotted and black sheep. So it just kind of gets turned back on, uh, on uh, Laban. 
In chapter 31, Jacob realizes that Laban and his sons don't like him and he needs to leave. What, what we may think is that, wow, I mean, this is just good for Jacob. This is just, man, smooth sailing. He's just seeing all of his flocks that he's going to get to take with him increase. But what we realize, especially as we move into chapter 31, we get a little behind the scenes information. And we're, we realize that this was not just a time of just um, happiness and, and joy in Jacob's life. It was a time of really, dif- really big difficulties and hardships. Uh, at this point now, he's beginning to fear for his life because Laban's sons are not happy. It's like, oh, Jacob's taking all of our father's wealth that really belongs to us. Then Laban um, is not really liking it. He falls out of favor with um, Laban. And then God says, look, it's time to go. Chapter 31, verse 30, uh, verse 3, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred. But notice the promise there. God says, I will be with you. So now Jacob's got to convince his wives to leave, Right. I mean, this is where they grew up. This is their father's household. They have other families there. Their brothers live there. Um, they never lived anywhere else except this place. And he's going to take them a, a long way away. So he's got to convince them. So he gathers his wives to him and, and he can, tries to convince them by reflecting back on his time with Laban. And as he does that, we get a picture into the hardships that Jake, uh, Jacob has been facing. But in the midst of that, he also describes God's presence. How God's presence has sustained him. Jacob says at the beginning of verse five in uh, in chapter 30, um, he said, uh, excuse me, 31. He says this. I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I served your father with all my strength. And yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. Then he goes on to credit God with success in breeding the sheep. Let's go back to that weird thing of the branches. What was happening there? Did the superstition actually work? Well, not, not exactly. It wasn't the superstition of speckled branches that made the difference. What made the difference in Jacob's blessing was the presence of God with Jacob. Jacob actually had had a dream during the breeding season where God revealed to him, hey, Jacob, it's actually me that's doing this. I'm actually the one that's blessing you here. It's not the superstition of the of the branches. It's me. I'm the one that's doing that. God was with him. God was at work in the midst of Jacob's hardship, in the midst of Jacob's trial. Now, what are Rachel and Leah going to say? Are they going to go with Jacob? What's going to happen? Well, what we learn in verse 14 through 16 of chapter 31 is that these two ladies that are sisters and married to Jacob, they at this point in their lives, they don't need much convincing to leave Laban. They have had enough of their father's scheming and trickery. And not to mention, remember what he did when it came to them marrying Jacob. Okay, that was not a very nice thing for him to do. They're done. They they don't need any convincing. They say, whatever God told you to do, Jacob, we're in. Do it. Let's go. Let's get out of here. So Jacob gets his family and possessions, takes off without telling Laban. The text tells us that Laban was in the, in, in the sheep shearing season, okay? Which means there's a lot of work. It's hands-on. You're not really focused on anything else. It's three days before he even realized that Jacob has left. And remember, there's already a three-day um, distance in between them. So now it's time for Laban to grab his guys, his sons probably, and other people with him. And he takes off and he's chasing them down. And he is not happy at all. And probably has in his mind, we can tell from the kind of Context clues here. He probably has some intentions to do harm to Jacob because guess what happens? We read it in the text. God appears to Laban in a dream. You know what God says? Don't mess with Jacob. Don't 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 harm him. Don't do anything to him. And actually Laban listens, but he still goes and he overtakes Jacob and he confronts him. 
And he is not happy. He starts hurling all of these accusations against Jacob. And most of these accusations don't don't hold any water. Have you ever been falsely accused of something? Have you ever had somebody who's already mistreated you, then start accusing you of things that really you haven't done? Man, that hurts. That's hard. And maybe it's been not just one time, but maybe it's it's been going on for a season of life. And that's that's some serious hardship. That hurts. That takes its toll on us. He accuses Jacob of stealing his daughters. Did Jacob steal his daughters? No. Laban gave them to him. Actually, Jacob had worked 14 years for his daughters. There's no stealing going on here of Laban's daughters. Then he accuses Jacob of driving them away with the sword. Why did you drive them away with the sword? Jacob didn't drive them away with the sword. They voluntarily signed up and said, let's get out of here. <laughs> That's a false accusation. And then he goes on. He accuses Jacob of not letting him throw a party. I would have sent them away with a celebration. I highly doubt that Laban would have thrown a party for Jacob leaving. We know he wouldn't have done that because he's so greedy and, and stingy and, and and he's angry that Jacob wants to leave in the first place. There, there wouldn't have been a party. And so he's got all these false accusations. Put yourself in Jacob's place. And yet Laban has to admit, but your God appeared to me last night and told me not to harm you. In the midst of the hardship, God was with Jacob. There is one semi-accurate accusation that Laban hurls at Jacob. He says, why did you steal my gods? Now, Jacob actually didn't steal uh, Laban's gods. So in that sense, it's a false accusation. But one of his wives, one of Laban's daughters, did steal his household gods. Apparently, uh, Laban had these household gods. So, uh, compared to a temple god where you might have a big statue, the household gods were little min- miniature figurines of the, of the false gods. And apparently he had them in his house. And apparently Rachel went and stole them uh, uh, before they fled from her father's house. Um, we may come back to that in just a moment. But at this point, from Jacob's perspective, he's just being falsely accused. He doesn't even know that Rachel stole the gods. Jacob sees this as his chance to make his final case against Laban. He's ready to kind of let him have it one last time before they part ways. And as he does, we get really an incredible picture into the life of what Jacob's life has looked like over the past 20 years. Verse 38 through 41 these 20 years I've been with you. I just want you to stop for a minute. Some of you aren't even, haven't even lived 20 years, okay? Um, some of you have lived 20 years. Some of you have lived multiples of 20 years. But I just want you to think about however old you are now, and I want you to subtract 20 years from that, and I want you to think about that span of life. I mean, even if you're 80 years old, I mean, 20 years, that's a, that's a pretty good chunk of time. 20 years and this is how he describes 20 years of his life. He describes that he's he's bore the loss of Laban's flock himself and let Laban have what is good. He says, from my hand, you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day. The heat consumed me and the night it was cold and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters, six years for your flocks after he had stolen the flocks he was supposed to have. And then he goes on and says, you've changed my wages 10 times. And so think about throughout that 20 years, every time Jacob thinks I've worked this much and Laban said I could have this for it, Laban would switch it up on him. 20 years of hardship. 
But though he says in verse 40, there I was, you catch that? There I was out there in the cold and the heat. There I was being cheated and stolen from. There I was. In verse 42, we see that Jacob was not alone. Verse 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you have sent me away empty handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Friends, not only was God with Jacob, but his presence, God was also working on Jacob's behalf during the season of hardship. And really, when you come to the end of it, Jacob walks out of there blessed. He had walked into Padanaram with nothing, and he walks out blessed. But in the midst of that, it was 20 years of intense hardship. But God was with him. What do we learn? What do we learn? Church, as we consider the hardships Jacob endured, what gets highlighted in this passage is God's sustaining presence. And I'm not sure there's anything that, that helps us in times of trial and times of hardship than this truth, church, that God is with us. God is sustaining his people. And that's the first truth that we have, the first kind of takeaway. I told you we're going to spend some time walking back through that. And I just want to give you some takeaways, some things that we can walk out of here thinking. And the first is this. God's, God sustains us with his presence. God sustains us with his presence. Consider those, those hardships that Jacob's faced, being taken advantage of by his boss or his uncle. Have you ever been taken advantage of by maybe a boss or maybe a family member? Disliked? Cheated? Suffering loss? Had his property stolen? Ever had something stolen from you? Enduring physical dis- discomfort? En- enduring sleeplessness? Being chased down by somebody that wanted to harm him? Probably in this room, there's several of us, many of us, that could at least say, yeah, I face at least one of those hardships there. But then that we could add to that list the hardships that we face. But even though Jacob didn't seem to have much going for him in 20 years of his life, he did have the one thing that mattered most, and that was God. He had the presence of God with him. Three key verses in this long passage. Chapter 31, verse 3, God says, I will be with you. Chapter 31, verse 7, Jacob says, the God of my father has been with me. And in chapter 31, verse 42, Jacob says that God was on my side. If God had not been on my side. And church, the same is true for all of God's people. If you belong to God, then you can rest assured that no matter what trials you are going through, no matter what trials you go through, God is with you. Now, God's only with us if we belong to him. And the way that we belong to him is by faith in Jesus. See, God was with us in a very incredible way by sending his son. Remember one of the names of Jesus? Emmanuel. Sing about that at Christmas all the time. We can sing about that anytime, really. Emmanuel, what's Emmanuel mean? God with us. God sent Jesus himself. God, God came to earth to be with us. And Jesus then died on the cross to take away the very thing that separates us from God. God can't be with us if there's, if, if we're covered in sin. And we come into this world covered in sin, dead in our sins. But Jesus came to be with us. God came to be with us so that he could take away the thing that separates us from God. And then when he takes that away through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave and our faith and trust in him, then he fills us with none other than himself. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells into everyone who's believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. And so if you've trusted in Christ, you have the very presence of God living in you. Now, if you haven't trusted in Christ, you can't hold on to these promises. You don't have God with you walking through these trials, but you can. You trust in Christ. To rescue you from your sin. And so if you haven't believed in Jesus, you should do that today. You need to trust in Christ for the salvation that only he can give. 
Now, church, as we think about God's sustaining presence, I want to share with you four words that I think will help us. Now, I'm going to go through some of these super fast. So if you're a note taker, if you're taking notes, write, write quickly, okay? But I just want to share with you four words, okay, that, that would, would maybe help us see how, how wonderful the presence of God is in our lives. The first word is this. It's the word constant. Constant. God's presence is constant. There was never a time in those 20 years when God was not with Jacob. There may have been times where it felt like God was not with him, but there was never a time when God had abandoned Jacob. Never does Jacob accuse God of being partially present. He doesn't say, God, you are with me some of the time. He just says, God was with me. That implies all the time. God's presence is constant. Let me give you another word. God's presence is necessary. God's presence is necessary. When we get to this climax of this passage in chapter 31, verse 36 through 42, um, and Jacob is describing both the hardship and the reason for his endurance, which is God's presence. Notice that he says in verse 42, if God had not been on my side, if God had not been on my side, what's Jacob saying? He's admitting that God's presence in sustaining him was absolutely necessary. It wasn't just one of many ways. He doesn't say if God had not been on my side. Well, here's another way that I could have been sustained through that process. He says, if God had not been on my side, there would have been no hope for me. God's presence is necessary. It's constant. It's necessary. Let me give you another word. It's sufficient. God's presence is sufficient. Notice that Jacob doesn't credit God's presence plus something else. He doesn't say, God was with me and fill in the blank. If it hadn't been for God and something else. No, he just credits God. When everything seemed to be going wrong, all he had to cling to was God's presence. But that was all he needed. Now, this is a hard truth for us to learn. And it's also a truth that God teaches us through the experience of trials in our lives. Friend, God is all we need. But because of our self-sufficient tendencies... And our, 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 our tendency to not walk by faith, but want to trust in things that we can see and touch and, and feel with our, with our senses. Because of our self-sufficient tendencies, it often takes God putting us in a place where he is all we have to teach us that he is all we need. Have you ever been there before? In a place where God is all you have and it teaches you that he's all you need? I remember God teaching me this truth when I was 13 years old. I'd lived in the same place from the time I was uh, about six until my 13th birthday. Um, and so I, during that time, I went to the same school, same church, lived in the same house, had the same friends from first grade through seventh grade. And, and, I, and I liked it. I loved my life. I enjoyed my church, my school, my home, my friends. Um, it, everything was great. And then a couple of months after my 13th birthday, my family moved. Uh, dad had got a new job. And so we transitioned from that place to uh, another location. And I remember um, I remember feeling angry. I was very bitter. Um, I for the first several months, I felt like everything in my life had been stripped away from me. Now, it hadn't. Everything had been stripped away from me. But sometimes it's how it feels. Right. So I felt like that kind of wallowing in my own, own in my own pity. Uh, church life was different. My new school was very different and I really didn't like it. Uh, my friends were gone. I added to that. I was dealing with some health issues at the time. Now, in the grand scheme of things, I know that moving a couple hours away from where you had lived, that's not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. Like there are lots of trials in life that are way, way more difficult than that. 
But as a 13-year-old, to my 13-year-old self, it was a season of hardship. It was, that was hard. But you know what God did during that season of hardship? He taught me this truth from this passage. Now, he didn't teach it to me from this particular passage. But he taught me this truth, that his presence is sufficient. He didn't audibly speak to me, but he impressed this truth from his word upon my heart. And I think if I could describe what God was speaking to me, it would be this. He said to me, son, you have me. And that's all you need. I am your source of joy and satisfaction. In fact, I'm the only one who can truly satisfy your heart. If you have me, you have all you need and I will never leave you. So no matter what changes come in your life, no matter what you feel like gets stripped away from you, you have my presence and my presence is sufficient. And can I tell you something? As soon as I embrace that truth in faith, and trusted the Lord with that, my outlook completely changed. My attitude completely changed. It was transformed. And it's a lesson that I've carried with me in thankfulness throughout the rest of my life. Now, do I always put it into practice? No. But but I, I would not take anything for God teaching me that lesson. Because it's an important lesson for us to learn. As the psalmist says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Where is that joy coming from? What are we being satisfied by? By by unchanged circumstances? No. By the steadfast love of God. And that leads right into a fourth word. And that is the word shaping. God's presence is shaping. Shaping. God's presence in the midst of trials is shaping us into the people he's called us to be. It's the wonderful thing about God. God sustains us through the hardships, but he doesn't just leave us the same. He also grows us through the hardships. Jacob left Paddan Aram a different man than when he arrived. In chapter 29, he never mentioned God as he looked for a wife. But now, after 20 years of hardship, he can't speak about his life without mentioning God. And he's not blaming God. He's giving God the credit. God has used this hardship in Jacob's life to shape him into someone who thinks, speaks, and acts more like a chosen child of God than he did prior to the season of hardship in his life. And brothers and sisters, God is still doing that today. God has many tools that he uses to shape his people. And trials, hardships are one of the tools that God uses to shape us into the people that he has called us to be. My two-year-old likes to volunteer to pray at mealtime. We say, who wants to pray? Hand goes up, right? She wants to pray. And so we say, sure, go ahead. And when she starts to pray, she says this. We were joking about it with my family, laughing about it just, I think, yesterday. She says, Heavenly Father. That's how she hears me start prayers out that way. So she's learned that from me. And she says, Heavenly Father. Except that she can't pronounce it correctly. Remember, she's two. And so instead of hearing Heavenly Father, what we hear is Heavenly Potter. Heavenly Potter. That's what she says. It's so, so sweet. Heavenly Potter, thank you for our food. Right? Heaven, heaven, Heavenly Potter. It's so cute. We smile every time she says it. But I was thinking about that the other day. And you know, there's something that we can learn from her mispronunciation. Yes, God is our Heavenly Father. But God is also our Heavenly Potter. Which is how she says Father. Heavenly Potter. But he is a potter. He is a potter. Isaiah chapter 34, verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Friend, God is working on you if you belong to him as his child. 
God is working on me each and every day. He doesn't adopt us into his family as his children and let us stay the same. God is growing us and he's chiseling away all the things that don't belong in a child of God. And as he spins us on his potter's wheel, he takes tools such as trials and he presses them into us. And what is he doing as he presses them into us? Does it hurt? Yes. Is it uncomfortable sometimes? Yes. But is it good? Absolutely. Why? Because as he presses those tools of trials into our lives, he is pressing out sinful attributes like self-reliance and idolatry and complacency and impatience and worry. And he's pressing into us godly attributes like dependence upon him, worship of him, zeal for his mission and patience with his timing and rest in his plan and provision. James says it this way, count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Christian, as you walk through seasons of hardship, give thanks that your heavenly father is also your heavenly potter. No trial goes to waste in his hand. He is making you more like Jesus, who himself, the book of Hebrews says, learned obedience through his suffering. God's presence is constant, necessary, sufficient, and shaping. Church, God sustains us with His presence. If you could hang with me for just a couple more minutes, I want you to wrap up with one final takeaway for us. I think you'll find it interesting too, because this comes from one of the more interesting parts of this passage. Let me, let me, let me finish with this final thought, okay? Church, God sustains us with His presence, but why does He sustain us? Ultimately, why he does anything for his glory. Church, God sustains us for his glory. This is the second truth and last truth I want to share with you today. Why does God sustain us for his glory? I think one of the more interesting parts, other than the, the whole spotted, you know, superstition with the branches part, is Rachel stealing the household gods. I, I just find it kind of interesting. And one of the reasons it's kind of interesting because it leaves us with a lot of questions. We don't have much information and all of our questions we have about why she did it and all that, they're just really not answered. We can speculate, but um, not much information is given as to why or whatever became of it. So it kind of makes you wonder, why in the world would God even include those details in this passage? Other than just to help us visualize how high, how, how the tension was between Jacob and Laban when Laban chased him down, Right. Let me offer this suggestion as to why perhaps God included this part of the story. Throughout the entire passage, God's sovereignty over all things and his compassion and faithfulness and active presence with his people has been highlighted. God has been with Jacob. Jacob's God has been with him, helping him, working things out for the good of his salvation plan throughout the past 20 years. Let me ask you a question. Where have Laban's gods been through all of that? I guess sitting on a shelf in Laban's house. What have Laban's gods been doing to help Laban through all of this? Nothing. Not at all. Except getting stolen. That's the only thing they've done. It's gotten stolen. What are Laban's gods doing now? They're sitting in a saddlebag underneath a woman who is either lying or is, at least in the Israelite mind, making them unclean. Now consider for a moment the audience of who this book was written to to begin with. Moses wrote the book of Genesis for the people of Israel. And when he wrote this, the people of Israel had just left Egypt, which was full of false gods, and they were on their way to the promised land, which was full of false gods. 
Perhaps God's reason for including this detail was simply to say this. There is only one God in this passage. There's only one God in this world, and it's me. I sustain Jacob ultimately for my glory. Laban's gods are nothing. They're so weak, they can be stolen. They're so small, they can be hidden in a saddlebag. Israel, my people, do you want to know who is worthy of worship? I am. Do you want to know who you can trust in the good times and the hard times of life? It's me, the one true God. Do you know who can sustain you and faithfully fulfill his promises? you and even use the hardships of your life lives to mold you into the people that you have been created and rescued to be. It is me, the one true and only God. Perhaps God wanted this part of the story included to show that this wasn't just a showdown between Jacob and Laban, but a showdown between the one true God, Jacob's God and the false gods of Laban and who came out on top. Well, the end of the story, Laban's gods are in the hidden possession of a thief, while Jacob's God is ruling and reigning and accomplishing his salvation plan. It hasn't slowed him down, these hardships, one bit. Friend, when the hardships of life put pressure on you, it's sometimes tempting to chase after other things. Other gods, other things, people, substances, relationships, earthly pleasures to try to escape the difficulty. But please hear me. Those things are nothing compared with the one true God who loves you and who is with you and who will faithfully sustain you to the end. Those things are false gods. God alone is worthy of glory. He alone sustains his people to magnify his glory. Perhaps there is little that Satan hates less than a child of God who keeps trusting in the Lord in the midst of hardship and comes out on the other other side, looking more like Jesus and loving Jesus more than he or she ever had in their life. That must make Satan shriek in horror. Why? Because it's evidence of God's ultimate power and ultimate authority and sustaining grace. It's evidence that he alone is glorious and therefore he alone is worthy of all honor and glory. Brothers and sisters, are you in a season of hardship today? Do you see one on the horizon? I just want you to be encouraged. God is with you. The one true God is with you. And He's loving you through the midst of that. And He's at work. And I'm not denying how hard whatever trial it is, is. But I want you to know that He's with you and He is working to make you more like His Son, Jesus Christ. And there's nothing better than all of the world than to be molded by our heavenly potter to someone who not only is a child of God, but who looks like a child of God. And so keep trusting Him. Even on the days when you can't see Him and when it feels like He's not there. 20 years. But then as Jacob looks back, he realizes, oh my goodness, God was with me all along. And let's bring him glory. As we walk through these trials. Not running away from the Lord, but running further and further and further into his goodness and his kindness and his care and his provision for our lives. Let's let Satan shriek in horror as he sees children of God continuing to trust God's goodness and his sovereignty, even in the hardships of life.
Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. It is true. It is powerful. It sustains us through the difficulties of life. God, we just say thank you. We don't deserve it. We know it's only because of the blood that Jesus shed on the cross that we could have your presence with us. That we could be called your children and have you using the hardships of life to shape us into the people that you called us to be. Father, we are never more satisfied in life than we are living in complete dependence upon you. Use the hardships of our life to teach us to do just that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.